This is Applying the Bible, part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Fellowship. This season digs into the truth of Genesis 1 through 12, a series we're calling God of the Ages. As I've gotten feedback from different ones of you about this uh, this series that we're in that is guided by Genesis 1 through 12, one of the, um, the uh, words of feedback I get from people a lot is that how amazing it is of how much of our world is explained by these passages. How much of what we experience and what we see going on and what we see the ungodly world around us attacking of God's created order, how much of that is laid out in these passages. It's almost as if God chose these issues. God chose these epic beginning moments for those things that he would record about, that he would uh, pick out and explain to us, this is what happened, and this is why the world is the way it is. And when I say it's almost as if God chose, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek. He did choose these. I believe he chose these specific events, these specific things that happened to explain to us why our world is the way it is. And it's no surprise to me that these epic opening events explain so much of what we see and experience in our world today. Um, there was a celebration of unity uh, um, that went on downtown, and I, I wanted to be down there for it and see what it was about and things. And, and I thought, what if Harvest had a booth down at the celebration of, of unity? Celebrate the oh. fact that we all are sinners and that we have the opportunity to be saved by grace in Christ. That's what we have together. The impact of sin on our world is unavoidable and impactful for everyone. Uh, It's been said the disastrous consequences of Adam's sin cannot be overemphasized, resulting in the fall of mankind, the beginning of every kind of sin, suffering, and pain, as well as physical and spiritual death for the human race. And that's what we look at during these weeks in Genesis 3. We looked at verses 1 through 5 last week, and and we'll read back over those, and we're focusing this morning on verses 6 through 13. So we pick up in verse 1 of Genesis 3, and it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, 
knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now, next week we'll look at... Well, focusing on the faults of the players involved and uh, as we see in the different consequences that are brought to bear from the curse that we live under that is a result of this disobedience to God. But today, this morning, we're focusing on the immediate impact of sin for our oldest ancestors, Adam and his wife Eve. We saw um, almost a 24-hour focus on Hurricane Florence bearing down and, and moving in across North Carolina and South Carolina. We saw lives go from calm and tranquility of their oceanfront life to, a, to being stormy and tossed about. And similarly, Adam and his wife, they step out of the shelter of trusting and obeying God. What we see here this morning is they step into a life of separation to discover what was evil. And to only be reminded of what was good. We move forward in verse 7 and we see this happen. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Do you see the cascading nature The cascade of consequences, the rapid regression of relationships, and it's marked by the term and. Okay? Do you notice how every line there begins with and? It's like this happened, and then this, and this, and this, and this, and this. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves knowing clothes, and they heard the sound of the garden, and the man and his wife hid themselves. It's like, boom, and it just cascaded down uncontrollably. That's what I see as I I observe the grammar here. And then notice how God brings a close to the situation. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He, being God, said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. We continue looking at this passage as the greatest tragedy that ever took place. The greatest tragedy that ever played out. And if you recall, we are defining this tragedy in the sense of a play. 
okay? It's something that's played out on a, a stage, if you will, a play dealing with tragic events and having an unhappy ending, especially one concerning the downfall of the main character, and even more so a Shakespearean tragedy, that one element which involves an unhappy ending for everyone involved, the good being destroyed with the bad. Creation itself has been groaning to go back to its perfect state. As we're told about in Romans 8, everyone involved was affected by this downfall of Adam and his wife. You know, God can identify with parenting in so many ways. He had kids that went astray. Um, You know, Parents can identify with this in a lot of ways when it comes to the quote-unquote forbidden fruit, you know? And when we say, okay, don't, what, you see that right there, don't do that. Don't touch that. Okay, what's the next question? Why? Why shouldn't I touch it? What's wrong with it? Why can't I do that? What's the big deal about it? If they're not asking it verbally, they're thinking it in their minds. It's how we deal with the forbidden fruit. You know, our modern day, I don't know if you're aware of this, you know, our modern day kind of forbidden fruit is like, what in the world's Tide Pods? Do you hear about this? Teenagers were daring each other to take detergent pods and stick it in their mouth and bite into it to see what would happen. I mean, and it was, it was near-death experiences. I don't remember, recall if anyone died from it, but it became kind of like this modern-day forbidden fruit. Don't do it. Why? This is sadly sim- similar to what we see going on, the devil facilitating a fixation on what is forbidden by God's commands. Get this this morning. The greatest tragedy should cause us to have a greater vigilance toward sin and a greater thankfulness toward Jesus. This greatest tragedy should cause us to have a greater vigilance toward sin and a greater thankfulness toward Jesus. And first of all, in order to stop playing a role in life's greatest tragedy, you yourself trust and obey God when tempted. In order to stop playing your role in life's greatest tragedy, trust and obey God when you're tempted. We see that that we're told here, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desired to make one wise, we, we see a further description. We looked last week at the lies of God's enemy that are involved when we are tempted. Here we see a further description of what's going on within uh, Adam's wife here when she's being tempted here. It says she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who is with her and he ate. Recall, as we looked at last week, what the tragedy is of this moment. Aside from everything else that's going on, aside from the fact that Adam is with her in some way, in in spite of everything that's going on here, as we looked at last week, the most important aspect here that God is communicating is that he gave a command and his children disobeyed it. And it brought great consequence. Disobedience to a clear command. God's command, as we looked at last week, is for 
in 2.26 or 2.16, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And we see this emphasis in God's question. That he asks us, after asking, who told you that you were naked? He goes straight to the point in verse 11. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? This is why we looked at so, so intensely last week. God cares about obedience to his commands. Ultimately, Adam and Eve were drawn to the opportunity to judge for themselves what is right and what is wrong. As one person writes throughout Scripture, the essence of sin is to put human judgment above divine command. I will decide what's right for me. And all of us can identify with the three categories that Eve's temptation falls into. The Apostle John warns about these categories of temptation that we face in the sinful world that we live in in 1 John 2.16 where he says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And we looked at Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and how he dealt rightly as the second Adam, as we talked about, how he dealt rightly with temptation, and he faced similar temptations. He faced the desire of the flesh to feed himself with the unsanctioned use of his power. He faced the desire of the eyes to have all the kingdoms of the world that he would eventually reign over in eternity, to have them immediately. He faced the pride, the temptation of the pride of life to, ex- to be exalted, forcing the Father to protect him and to raise him up before all the crowds. Obedience is our one move. And it is the one thing that God pulls out of this moment to show us as the problem. Now, if we are in Christ, if we know Christ as our Savior, if we have become obedient to the gospel, we don't lose our souls. But in disobedience, we can still lose our joy, our purpose, our ability to walk by God's Spirit, our our desire to live itself as consequences of sin. You have... One move to defeat the work of the devil in your life. And it is obedience to God. Trust and obey God when you want to take that second intentional, lustful look. Trust and obey God when when you want to indulge your fleshly desires outside of the boundaries that he has put around those desires, whether they be sexual or any other. Trust and obey God when you want to exalt yourself and take credit for what he's allowed to happen in your life. Trust and obey him. You know, a modernistic preacher said one time, announcing in in the defense of his liberal theological position, he said, I'm just not that concerned about the devil. 
one of his acquaintances replied, it's not, that is not what matters so much. He says, well, let me ask you one more question. Is the devil concerned about you? If you are in the habit of disobedience, if you're in the habit of being like, hey, you know what? It's all under God's grace. Living when the desires of the flesh, the, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, just chasing after that, the devil is not concerned about you. It's because his mission is already accomplished in you. He's got you living in disobedience. He's got you right where he wants you. Don't live that way. Make obedience to God your goal. Live in his grace, in his sanctifying, working grace in you by the power of his spirit. That's God's goal for you. Challenge you secondly, in order to stop playing a role in life's, life's greatest tragedy, see sin as the cause of relational separation. We read, it says, then the eyes of both of them were open. Sin caused this. And they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man in his And his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. God warned that disobedience would bring death. And death, in its broader sense, is separation. Physical death is the soul's separation or the spirit's separation from the physical body. Relational death is separation from others. We have this statement, you're dead to me. Okay, that doesn't mean I'm going to believe that that you're in a grave somewhere. No, it's saying we're we're separated. Our relationship is is severed. And, And sin brought death into their relationship with God and them. It brought death into their relationship with each other. And we see them sewing fig leaves together. Their differences from each other became vulnerabilities. Their flesh became conduits of temptation. The knowledge of evil meant having evil intentions. It meant fear of someone else's evil intentions. You know, notice they made themselves loincloths. They didn't, sew, they didn't sew themselves full body suits. They didn't sew some sort of burker that would just kind of cover all of themselves. They made loincloths. They covered the parts of themselves that were meant to bring their greatest expression of marital intimacy. And they became vulnerabilities. I, mean, I, I saw a comic that had uh, Eve sitting kind of at a rock and she had a plate of, of leaves and she was eating a salad and Adam walks up and he says, Eve, that's not a salad, that's my dirty laundry. <laughs> but it brought separation from God. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. We see in verse 9 and 10, it says, I heard you in this, heard the sound of you in the garden, Adam says to God, 
And I was afraid. Know something, that you see this at the end of the book of Revelation, at the end of God's revelation to us about his will and his plans, that the goal of all biblical history is to bring us to that statement where it is proclaimed, behold, the dwelling of God, the presence of God is with man again. God is at work to restore his people back to this place prior to us being afraid and unable to stand in his presence. And let the record show we, our sin, separated ourselves from his presence. And they hid among the trees. I might have shared this with you before. I remember some friends and I stayed in um, another friend's cabin in the hills of, of North Carolina. And we knew that there was something off about the, the man that lived with his parents uh, next door. Because when a couple of us were in the backyard grilling or something, he was standing watching us uh, from a hiding place. And his hiding place was he had a branch about this big and he had his eyes behind it and he would look over it and look at us, and then he ducked down behind the branch like that. Something was off with this guy, and it turned out that was the case. That's why he was living with his parents still and all that. But that's about as crazy as Adam and Eve hiding in the trees from the ever-present, omniscient God. C.S. Lewis has said, pride always means enmity. Not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. Disobedience brings ungodly fear of God. The devil's strategy was stages. It's always stages of separation. The first stage is disobedience. The first stage is is breaking that relationship of trust and obedience. And the second stage is always fear of God's condemnation or shame. So that a person that doesn't know Christ, the first thing they will either think is, I've done too much, God could never forgive me, or they think, why would God do that for me? And when we know Christ is our Savior, this is still the enemy's strategy. First is to get us to obey by saying it's not a big deal. And the second is to bring fear of condemnation and shame, saying that was a really big deal. You could never go back. And this is why God... uh, counsels us and beckons us into the throne room of our dad in Hebrews four fifteen through 16, reminding us, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, being Jesus, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us, being those who have received Christ as our Savior, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He is combating that shame that comes with temptation and sin. He is combating still the work of his enemy in his people. We still have a tendency to cover ourselves and hide in the trees when we sin. And God's answer is, bust open the doors of my throne room and climb up in the lap of your dad and say, I need help. 
That is the God of the universe that gives us that permission. We have a lifetime hall pass to the hallways of the castle in the middle of the kingdom that rules the universe, right into the throne room of God. And Satan wants us to forget about that. We see their separation from each other as well, playing the blame game with each other. Really not just blaming each other, but also blaming God, right? Because Adam says, uh, it was the woman who you gave me. And Eve says, it was the serpent, parentheses, who you made, by the way. Today's loincloths, is when we hide our weaknesses, hide our differences, hide our vulnerabilities, hide our temptations, hide from accountability, hide from help from each other. Today's trees are religion, avoidance, shame. We start saying, well, at least I'm not as bad as those people or that guy or... Anything to keep from confession, enjoying God's forgiveness, enjoying his grace. In order to stop playing a role in life's greatest tragedy, thirdly, I challenge you, receive God's restoring work through Jesus. I want you to help, I want to help you see this by understanding, again, Jesus is the second Adam. It's what scripture calls him. But see God's grace here. See God's restoring work right from the beginning. And it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God from among the trees. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? The wording here would be like, God showed up for his regular evening stroll with his children. I want you to look here for a second, okay? The sound that they heard, hear me when I say this, was not the sound of a belt sliding through God's belt loops. You need to hear that. For many of us, that's what we think of when we think of God. That's what we think of when we've done something wrong. We think of... Maybe that's what we experienced. I'm not saying you needed it. I'm not saying you didn't. But for so many of us, that's what we think of. That's not what they heard, right? Did God not know what happened? He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. But yet he showed up the way he always showed up to go for a stroll with his children. God didn't step in slapping his kids and then ask questions. So why did he ask, where are you? Like I said, he's omniscient. 
I believe it was for Adam and his wife to see themselves where they were now living. And the greatest thing that they now feared was the searching presence of God. And that was the very thing that they needed most. Remember stage two of the enemy's strategy against God's children? Shame, hide, you can never go back. The greatest thing that they needed was the, was the searching presence of God. How much do you avoid letting God ask, where are you? Where are you right now? Where are you with me? When was the last time that you answered that? Why didn't God ask the serpent? What went on here? What did you do? There's no point. See, God had a purpose in his questions with his children. And that purpose had no point with the serpent. Because there's no redemption for the serpent. There's no pathway to being restored for the serpent. But there's redemption for God's children. There's restoration. And that comes through confession. That comes through answering that question honestly. Where am I? Confession means to agree with God. To agree with his truth about sin. All of this, see verse 11. The woman who gave me, she gave it fruit of the tree. And I ate. You see it with Eve. In verse 13, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. See, when I'm studying passages, I look for the same phrase being, the scripture will use the same exact phrase so many times to, for emphasis, and I ate. Yeah, I ate the fruit which you commanded me not to eat. See, confession is the first step of restoring broke relationships broken by sin, broken by separation, confession with God and confession with each other. I did it. I did that. We touched on the fact that Jesus is the second Adam. He's the Adam that got it right. And I want you to see this and why I say receive God's restoring work through Jesus. I want to challenge you to study Romans 5, sorry, Romans 5, 12 through 19. And I'll just read some of it here this morning. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Then it goes on to describe that transgression and and such and, and picking up in verse 15 of Romans 5, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. It is abounded for many. 
In verses 18 through 19 of Romans 5, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, and so one act of righteousness leads to justification, justification and life for all men. That is why there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because Christ brought justification, declaring righteous, available for all men. For And continue on verse 19, for as by one man, as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Christ is the restoring second Adam who obeyed all and yet died. For us. I was watching... Um, Black Panther, and um, it's one of the one of the most conflicting and interesting villains in a movie. And the villain's last breath before he dies, when he's being offered to be healed, and and he says, "I'll probably end up locked up." And the movie has a lot of. Um, themes running through it, but he says, bury me in the ocean where my ancestors jumped from the ships because they knew that death was better than bondage. And then he dies. Death is better than bondage. But here's a trick. Christ died the death. We don't have to die the death that Christ died, but yet we get the life. That's what it means to, to first obey the gospel, to receive the life that's offered to us through Christ by the death and the resurrection that he experienced, but also growing in Christ. What is it called? Die to yourselves and live to God. Death is still better than bondage. But for those of us who know Christ as our Savior, who are in Christ, it's a choice to die to ourselves and live to God. Death to self and living for Christ is truly better than bondage to sin. And Christ is in the work of restoring us back to life. To fixing that separation between us and God and fixing that separation between each other. And it comes through dying to ourselves and living to God. This has been Applying the Bible, part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Fellowship. We are a fellowship of followers of Christ who seek to make it about Him and His gospel mission in our daily lives. And if this message has been helpful for you, please feel free to subscribe and share Applying the Bible with a friend.